You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 388, the unstoppable rise of Olivia Coleman. Eric Cantona sings with his family every morning. Should we all join in? And an awkward situation with a doorman. It's all coming up after It Bites and Calling All the Heroes.
I remember them playing this track on the old Grey Whistle Test in the mid-80s, and it felt like they had quite a big, big future ahead of them, but this turned out to be their only hit single, number six on the UK Top 40 in 1986, It Bites and Calling All the Heroes. Just goes to show that our pop predictions are as good as our football <laughs> predictions, possibly. I always get I always get that um, It Bites confused with um, a post-rock band called It Hugs Back, oh. who, uh, whose guitarist has now been loaned out to the latest lineup of Wire. Oh, okay. Who's an, who's an exceptionally pretty man with very long hair? And I said to my friend that I go and see why with, I'm a bit worried I might fancy this man. What does that mean? And he said, No, I think you're just confused by the fact he's got very long hair. And actually, I think that's what it was oh. ultimately. So, uh, so yes, no one need worry. I oh, I thought we had breaking news there. I was going to say yes, breaking uh, everything that we knew about me. No, I am. Um, I, I, I suspect he's with the very long hair, and uh, and I think he's just a nice man. I just get confused when people are nice. Anyway, um, yeah, that's 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 shut this cold is before I cause any more damage than I already have. I'll help you with that by saying welcome to the podcast from the <laughs> Parish you. Council. It's episode 388. I'm Terence Stackham. And if I was doing an old-fashioned, smarmy Bruno Brooks intro, I'd oh, say... Man. Do we really need to resurrect uh, the, the career of Bruno Brooks? <sighs> well, nobody else is. So, uh, yeah. Uh, hey, this is oh. what I'd say. I'd say, uh, there she is. She's my hero. But I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that smarmy intro. Instead, I'm just going to say, "Here's my co-host, Juliet Harris." Hey, I like that I do a bit of co-host. It makes you want to mm. wear a sort of spangly jacket and do jazz hands. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, and also, I do feel you've got better choices for hero. It's bad enough that mm. I'm occasionally employed as your agony aunt. Never, never mind as an aspirational figure. <laughs> well, I, I, I think uh, I'm, I may be asking later in this podcast to, for a oh, reprise man. of your ag- <laughs> agony aunt. Oh one. man, it was was last time not enough? <laughs> Okay. No, no, it's, uh, you're, you're very good. Uh, you're, uh, you're a sort of sage uh, on oh, such matters. Oh, well, you know, that's one way of, uh, That's one four-letter word. Suddenly it feels a long time since many of us came across Olivia Coleman playing Sophie Chapman in Channel 4's Peep mm, Show. Yes. It was immediately obvious that she's a wonderful talent for comedy acting, and um, as her career blossomed, we discovered that she was equally adept at a whole range of roles. Mm. But this week, Jules, we've both been to see her... In in her Golden Globe winning performance as Queen Anne in The Favourite. Yes, we have. We both went separately. Separately, Whilst yes. an evening at the cinema would be excellent, not mm. least because I would get to eat lots of popcorn mm. noisily in front of you and you'd oh find that difficult. Oh, my God, yes. Um, yeah, I, um, it did make me laugh. Someone did tweet, because, of course, Olivia Coleman winning a Golden Globe is, mm. is not a surefire indicator, but a good indication that she's at least in contention mm. for winning a, an Oscar, Academy yeah. Award or an Oscar, as mm. they're known. And uh, someone did put on Twitter, uh, surely, um, surely Sophie winning an Oscar would be the most Peep Show thing ever <laughs> happened to the character of Mark in true. Peep Show, which is true. Um, yeah, we both went to see it. We, we I very much enjoyed uh, going to see uh, her with my girlfriend at The Favourite, uh, The Favourite at the Hastings Odeon. Mm. Um, everyone always like a trip to the Hastings Odeon because Hastings Odeon has several several screens, but like in my father's house there are many mansions. Um, in the Hastings <laughs> Odeon there are four screens, and there are two very large screens. Um, one yeah. screen that is sort of fairly medium sized and one that is a broom cupboard with a projector in it and I thought we'd be in the broom we went on a Saturday night and I thought Saturday night in Central Hastings which is not um, mm. 
They're not them. You know, there are other more cultured parts of Hastings. Mm. Um, that sounds unpleasant, but it's it's ultimately true. Mm. And we we thought, oh, we'd be in the brewing cup. And we weren't. We were in the medium sized room. We thought the attendance would be poor because it was a Saturday night in a very cultured film. And there were about twenty people in there. It was maybe a, a quarter full at best. But everyone looked like us. There were very middle class people that turned up. Uh, there was one couple that we knew. Um, several very well spoken gay men of a certain vintage had all turned up together. They were always <laughs> having a night out. And yeah, we were very British short by hat and, all, and I like the fact when you go and see a middle class film all the trailers are <laughs> middle class films as well so, yes. so, uh, so uh, we were no children's film trailers which uh, my girlfriend was delighted at mm. and uh, also we didn't see any superhero trailers so we saw other things trailers for, for other grown up films <laughs> and um, I had immeasurably high expectations mm. for the, for the favourite to the point where I was just thinking why am I bothering to go and see this because I am insanely in love with the fact that it is a film that's set in the court of Queen Anne who was the last Stuart so you had the idea that the dynasty was gradually starting to uh gradually starting to uh, to sort of to, to fade away and I remember my mum I had a great conversation with my mum she she did make me promise not to tell anyone but it is too good not to repeat she um, <laughs> she did say um I thought Queen Anne was a Georgian. I went, no, they were called George. The clue was in the name. <laughs> and she kind of said, oh, I didn't I didn't know that, Julia. So, uh, so I did feel a bit bad. But anyway, I'm sure she'll find a way of getting her own back on me at some point. But um, I thought hmm. that, um, certainly it's a royal film, period drama, I like those. Queen Anne, sort of, you know, neglected female historical figure. Um, Olivia Coleman, who is just adorable, totally adorable, um, particularly in her Golden Globes uh, speech, which is worth looking up if you haven't seen it, because it is wonderful. And because she's just, uh, the fact that she said thank you for the sandwiches as one of her opening gambits, <laughs> I thought kind of sounds like who she is really. And um, and also ably supported by uh, Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone, both of whom have excellent pedigree. And some of the string soundtrack was done by um, uh, Anna Meredith. My oh yes, you're from, Anna Meredith. Yeah. From you know, from this podcast, occasionally mm. in the past, we've well, we've chosen a couple of her numbers. So, um, so I thought, will this film ever, ever be as good as I think it was? It's going to be, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but it actually exceeded my expectations. I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. There was, there was, we we were so emotionally invested in it by the end that that I'm surprised we were actually able to get up out of our seats when it finished. Really, it was it was. I felt like I'd run a marathon watching it, and I I loved I loved the cinematography. Some people I can see why it's not to everyone's taste, and it is quite a quirky film. And I liked the fact it was quite a quirky film. And um, I've had to warn my mother and father about the language when they go on Tuesday because there are some Fs and some Cs for those of you who find that sort of thing hard to cope with. Although I quite enjoyed the casualness of the Cs. Mm. I thought that was quite entertaining was flung into conversation there was no real ceremony we just kind of got on with it um i i thought olivia coleman's performance is this i mean there is always that shorthand that if you've got olivia coleman in your comedy drama thing you just make her cry because she is a champion crier olivia <laughs> coleman she seems to get to that place and have real emotion um so uh, but she just did uh, the camera did this thing where they would just look the camera watched olivia coleman for a whole minute at one point and it was it was the journey that you went on with her without her saying anything in that in that minute was was phenomenal also i was extremely impressed a by emma stone's accent mm. if you didn't know that emma stone was american Indeed. and british mm. you wouldn't have known it was a very impressive performance for her and that they showed the doe-eyed emma stone that we often see in performances and then it changed into something else towards mm. the end um and I thought it was a career best performance from Rachel Weiss. I thought she was absolutely outstanding. I loved the way that your sensibilities swung with the film. 
Uh, it was in eight mm. sections. I don't think this is spoiling too much. Say so it's in eight no. sections, and and you do go on quite a journey, and things are different at different points of the film. Um, and I thought it was very politically relevant, actually, without mm. necessarily hammering it home. The country is at war, and there are different sort of schools of thought on how that should be dealt with, and it was almost about kind of war inside and out and again that feels particularly relevant at the moment you've got the war going on with another country and then the war internally within the court and also I, I thought it had a lot to say about the relationship between morals principles and power mm. I thought there was a there was a lot I don't want to say too much without spoiling the plot of the film but there, I thought there was it had some really interesting things to say about the balance between the three of those and you know, to, what does one mean if you don't have the others? I, I thought it was a terrific film. I liked it very, very much, and I hope it does well. I'd like to reinforce two things, uh, particularly you've said there. I agree with everything you said, but two things in particular. Um, I felt that clearly the director, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos, had enormous confidence in Olivia Coleman because, as you mentioned, um, some lingering shots, particularly that one that you mentioned of her as Queen Anne, often very close up, and Olivia Coleman's ability to convey deep emotion oh, the best. without the speaking is yeah. so evident, fantastic. I, I enjoyed the film immensely, as I say. The, the lighting was wonderfully authentic, all oh, candles and dark really corners. Was, yes. and, uh, but, yeah, the other thing I was going uh, um, reinforce of what you just said as a, as a sort of moral tale if anyone ever believed that the corruption of power died away after Tudor times then you'd have to have your view changed by this movie and uh, again a further aphorism is that once again we learn that enormous wealth and privilege do not automatically bring happiness um, but there was just one thing I wanted to ask you about because this could have been mm. just me it's not really a negative I think this reflects on me was it too long perhaps it's more of a reflection on my diminishing attention span but two, <laughs> two hours felt like 30 minutes too long for me but that may reflect my inability to concentrate for two hours on anything I, I didn't feel didn't it was too like, long mm. Um, I felt tired at the end, but mm. mostly because I emotionally we just we bought into it. We went yeah. in, we went on we went on the journey. Um, I think actually I think what helped me was the fact that it was broken up into eight sections. Mm. So at the start of each section, it would have the number of the section, and then it would have a lot. It was quite clever. It would have a line that was said within that section. Mm. So it would have a line of dialogue that they felt summed up each section. And actually, I tried to guess in my head each time which way the story was going to go. And sometimes I got it right and sometimes I didn't, which was, I'm not saying that I'm, you know, psychic, this sort of thing, but it was very, that was very interesting. And, um, and also, I, I, yeah, like you say, it was, I thought that was quite good. Mm. Um, just I, the thing that I that, that Livia Coleman has said in being interviewed uh, one it's done well around all the film festivals and she I think she might have won in Venice as well but they've been to various different places I don't know if it has can happened yet I don't think it has has it I, I, but I, I don't know yet no, but I but it, it it's doing pretty well mm. at all of the different festivals. But she said there was one particular festival where the three of them won a joint award, mm. and she said that she liked that. And actually, Olivia Coleman was outstanding. She was really outstanding, and I really hope this open doors this opens doors for her. And that although she said rather sadly, I heard her on the front row. I think I did feel a little bit sorry for her, in that she said she's always very much enjoyed going on holiday to America and taking her kids out to the park. Oh yeah, There's those no days are gone. Little, 
no one knows she is, but yeah, it would seem that this is the beginning of the. She said, well, and she said kind of brightly, we'll find somewhere else to go on holiday. So I suspect they will do with it. But I thought, yeah, I mean, I thought she was brilliant. She was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. You know, can't speak highly enough of her. I thought the other two were also outstanding, both in the context of the film and in the context of their own careers as well, I thought. Mm. And it seemed because the film was so tight again without giving anything away because it was so tightly bound in the in the joined fates of the three of them and the differing power dynamics and relationships between every part of that triangle mm. not just that much is made of course of the fact that they're both competing for olivia coleman's attentions but you know about the relationship between rachel vice and, and and emma stone as well which which their characters which changes during the film I, it does seem a bit unfair Although, mm. you know, Olivia Coleman is the queen, so mm. she is the lead, it seems a bit unfair to separate them out because those three performances, it was a very good film anyway, where all three mm. performances combined together to make it absolutely outstanding. And and also, interestingly, mm. you say about the, the director, the director had directed Olivia Coleman before in a film called a weird film an equally strange film called The Lobster yes I haven't seen that yeah. yeah she's the hotel manager mm. in it so they had form and it would seem like from what Olivia Coleman said he didn't do that much directing and when you've got three but you mm. must be good to instill a sense of confidence in your three main actresses to have them bang out performances like that also nice to see Glenn from the thick of it that actor appear <laughs> at one point as well there and Mark Gattis in yes. a relatively small role I didn't even realise it was Mark Gattis until the end when he wasn't wearing that wig anymore uh, so, no, he, but he, he's a brilliant cameo I have to say he was he's, excellent he's really good everyone in it was fantastic it just seemed to be a film that was well as Olivia Coleman summed up in her speech she said about the, uh, the, the two women that she worked with she said I loved every minute of working with you I was so sad when it ended and I thought mm. it seemed like a film that was a, a happy set film because everyone just performed to their absolute best. I thought it was I thought it was terrific. And now we mentioned um, there Olivia Coleman winning a Golden Globe earlier this week, but it was another movie that picked up two awards, two Golden Globes, Best Motion Picture and Best Actor, that mm-hmm. uh, took your attention at the Globes. Yeah. Well, yes, the reason that it took my attention is because you have been yeah. so negative about it. I mm. haven't seen it. So Bohemian Rhapsody, the, yeah, the film that was uh, the biopic... Yeah, of, it's unbelievable, Jeff. The mm. uh, the biopic of um, <laughs> the biopic of uh, of uh, Freddie Mercury. Mm. Um, so uh, you, ha- I suspect, have a problem with this because you've seen the film and thought mm. it was awful. Mm. Um, I've read a lot of reviews of the film, so I haven't seen the film. So I'm only sort of experiences through others' experiences. But firstly, there were a lot of complaints that the film very much sanitised. Mm the the sort of sexuality of Freddie Mercury, which was a huge part of Freddie Mercury's story, and a really interesting part of Freddie Mercury's story as well, in that it almost it's a bit like George Michael, really, that gay men almost had to be sanitised to be acceptable. And actually, there is a far more interesting story to be told there. Also, I have a bit of an issue, because the director is Brian Singer, mm. who has, yes. been, has, has is, uh, been, you know... Mm have various accusations mm. levelled against him and and you know I'm, I'm trying to look up to see how far we've got into that story but well, he enough... left in the middle of, of filming yes. this movie as well he didn't he didn't complete it but by the way that indus, industry um the way the industry works he still got the credit for it even though you know he, he left walked out for one reason or another in the middle of filming it 
Yes, wasn't it Dexter Fletcher that finished it? It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah who, who I, you know, those of us in my vintage will remember from being in an ITV children's newspaper based drama press gang. So, um, <laughs> it, it, it does seem um, very peculiar that Bohemian Stretch to win these awards. I, I'm sure it's very popular with fans of the band Queen, but even the pretty much diehard fan um, with whom I watched the movie described the script as cheesy. Um, yeah, and, you know, she's a big, um, as we say, the director left in the middle of filming. It's peppered with inaccuracies and rock movie mm. cliches, yet uh, Golden Globe winner, Extraordinary Times. Yes, yes we, we live in extraordinary times, as everyone seems to say every 30 seconds on the news at the moment. So why shouldn't we join in? Every day at the breakfast table, Eric Cantona, the <laughs> former footballer, bursts into song with his family. It's one of those stories we feel like saying we genuinely haven't made this up. This is a story that has been reported. Would such behaviour, would that have you choking on your toast? That's next after St Etienne.
I had the pleasure of seeing Sandati and do a Christmas style show. I think not last Christmas, but the Christmas before at the Bechtel Dead War Pavilion. And uh, they, um, some of their early singles had um, obviously Sarah Cracknell of uh, two singles in. But the third, the original plan for Sandati was they were going to have a different lead singer every time. And they got Sarah Cracknell in for the third song that they did, and then decided that that was pretty much it, and that was their band. And it was good decision I think but on some of their earlier singles um, she had a they had a sort of backing singer type called Betsy that would sing with her and uh, Betsy did actually we didn't realise she was going to Betsy appeared at this gig which was great and they sang this together she came on and sang a few songs with her and Sarah would say oh Betsy's going to sing Betsy's a bit of a cult singer so she'd say oh Betsy's going to help me sing this one and people would cheer wildly at the thought of Betsy singing they've got a lovely rapport between the two of them and that's a a Betsy one that she and Betsy sing together and I'd, I'd never actually actually heard it I was a quite a big St Etienne fan but I, I, I was still picking them up at that point and I'd never heard that song before and I just fell in love with it instantly I think it's so good I'd like to perform it in my band I think uh, this is mm. news to my bandmate I think but um, I, I'm a huge fan of that I love the way that it moves I think it's a, I think it's a brilliant duet uh, and uh, I just think it's a, it's a quality song Who Do You Think You Are by St Etienne I'm old enough to remember the original back in 1973 by Candlewick Green and it was Yes indeed It was a kind of sort of bubblegummy song that you pretended you didn't like if you wanted to be seen mm. as cool in in the sixth form but um you know you, you secretly loved it when it came on the radio um but no never enough saint-etienne in this world for me so uh, great great song and uh, a great band i don't know if this is common with everyone as we grow older but i've found my levels of feeling awake and alert to the world have changed <laughs> as the yeah, years roll by I think, I think that might be for me as well and yeah. i'm 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 of a considerably, considerable, i'm a bit i'm a little bit of a, of a newer vintage in you mm. but now i'm like the uh, the old people that used to annoy me when i was young I, oh dear in, in my teens and early 20s i didn't like the mornings i only came alive sometime in the afternoon mm. reaching my peak at gig going or pub going time maybe eight o'clock in the evening only slowing down in the early hours um now i'm up and about in the mornings happy to go for a long lunchtime walk and then everything starts getting a bit hazy by about four in the afternoon mm. and i start looking forward to my bed with its delicious heated under blanket however i don't know if i would welcome eric Cantona to my breakfast table this week in an interview, Eric Cantona tells us that, and I quote, At the table, with my wife and children, I like to stand up and sing. My songs are surreal. The words come out automatically, end of quote. Now, Jules, I don't think I could bear this. A French bloke <laughs> singing in tongues as some sort of Latter-day Jack Brel. I, so I feel I must check. Do you sing and dance your way through your early mornings? I have been known to sing in the early mornings before, not to other people, often to myself mm. at home. When I was growing up, where I, when I lived at home with my mum and dad, and also now when I go and stay with my parents or see my mum regularly, mm. um, we, me and my mum sing quite a lot together. Oh, and this, I mean, not in the tedious singing in tongues way that Eric does, <laughs> although I do give Eric Cantona a pass on pretty much everything, yeah. and I do quite like this because Eric Cantona is just so daft that I just, or not so daft, he's so in his own way that I just think if that's what works for Eric fine you know i i i i have an you know an enormous uh, regard for eric Cantona generally so i'm always quite happy to you know if it was anyone else but eric i think it was old but you know eric is eric isn't he really to quote tony blair <laughs> talking about john prescott john is john eric is eric so um 
I, my mum and I, singing has always been quite a big part of our lives. Mm. So we sang in a singing group together at one point. I sang in a singing group led by a, a 60s, 70s singing songwriter, Claire Hamill, bizarre. Oh, gosh, but, yes. Because Hastings and Sinanis is, is that kind of place. Yeah. We met her in the pub and they said, oh, why don't we do some singing in your basement? Which was, she was in a house two doors along from the pub at the time, so it seemed to make sense. She was a real um, John Peel favourite, Claire Hamill. She was, yeah, mm. she was. And she did a lot of work with John Martin. Mm. And uh, John Martin and his wife Beverly used to live in Hastings things as well so so there's quite a um for a while anyway so it's quite a quite a crossover there and um and so my i asked my mom if she wanted to join me in that and and we used to do that we used to sing a lot when i was younger when i was doing the guitar and things and we do often sing spontaneously along with things usually mm. or if one of us mentions a song we will then start singing it which her sit when her sister finds comes down to visit yeah, her sister finds it very strange so i suspect <laughs> her sister might be in your camp mm. but yeah. and I, I sometimes sing in the car on the way to work along with music or something I, and, and actually singing is and I uh, uh, my old boss when I worked at my previous firm did used to say to me that he really liked singing in the car on the way back and home and, and, and he said he found it to be an enormous stress release and actually a lot of people I know that do fairly I don't want to call myself a high flyer, but do fairly professional mm. jobs are in singing groups and it is and singing for an hour with other people is a huge release I'm not sure if the breakfast table is the idea that's my for problem that, but, yes. uh, and, and I'm yeah I, I have to say I, I'll give Eric Cantona a free pass I think if you're the child mm. of Eric Cantona you're not the child of <laughs> Eric Cantona you're a child of an annoying dad that sings I suspect although I do quite like the fact that he later claims that he never loses his temper with his children, even at bedtime. Could the singing in the even temper be linked? This is working on the basis that Eric Cantona is a reliable witness about that. But um, I enjoyed the uh, this article that you're reading from, the Guardian article. It says mm. um, it was written by, uh, uh, by somebody called Amy Fleming, and she says, uh, When I recount Cantona's morning ritual to a psychologist, Jacques, uh, Jacques Ronay, who has studied the benefits of singing, his initial response is, that's weird. Yes, thanks for that. What, what, an ex, what, what an excellent celebrity. What an excellent sort of expert they got in there, actually. No, thank, thank goodness for that. And he does go on to talk about a bit, a bit more about it because he's a lecturer at Brunel, apparently, and it's talking about singing and grooming and this is interesting mm. singing in groups that i've talked about he says the same psychological character singing social singing and grooming as in you know monkeys grooming each other mm. have the same psychological characteristics and associated neurohormonal mechanisms which means that it basically endorphins are released so we mm. we associate endorphins with things like you know when you exercise and you feel good you might feel a bit dead after you've exercised but you also feel good because you've released endorphins eating chocolate as well apparently i'm not saying that one is more useful than the other but eating chocolate does the same thing um but it says our research suggests they're also involved in social bonding and apparently also um the immune system we boosted as well because apparently mm. the, the the body's first line of defense against pathogens which are quote unquote bad is a protein called salivary immunoglobin globulin um, so that apparently been shown to increase as a result of singing with other people. So maybe, maybe singing in a group of people is a good thing. To do. Although I think, like all things, and in, in the year of Me Too, perhaps ask their consent first. I'm not entirely, I'm not entirely convinced that Eric has asked his family's consent, which I know Eric is Garrick, but um, I, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for singing, and I know it might seem a, a bit ridiculous, but um, I've always found when I've sung in choirs for it to be an amazing, amazing release. I think is is how I find it, and also I've made great friendships in a choir and i remember in my singing group which some people i was, I was friends with it beforehand in, in the i was friends with beforehand but i remember the day that my friend bought her four-day-old baby to singing 
Hmm. And that was lovely. And being with my mum witnessing group was lovely as well. So actually, I have a lot to I have a lot to say that's good about group singing, and that the science behind it is interesting. Whether or not you should be belting out um, sort of a stream of consciousness, improvised numbers at your dinner table, at your breakfast table to your uh, your long-suffering family is perhaps another point. Yeah, I think it's the breakfast thing that, that disturbs me because I agree with you that uh, singing unites us and it can make us feel happy. And similar to yourself, my sister and niece sing in a choir, and I know it brings them yeah. great joy. Uh, and, and, and so on but, but of course there is another side to this you see this singing sort of thing because I, I after reading this uh, piece I, I was remembering working in an office with a woman who hummed tunelessly to herself all day long and that was a form of torture because if you had to sit alongside someone at a desk going oh yeah that's that's not ideal or, so I think my point is there's a time and place for example if I'm shopping in a supermarket in the morning, I really find it grinding if pop music is played over the PA system. And I've noticed that Morrison's, the supermarket, now have a completely quiet hour between 9 and 10 on a Saturday morning. And I'm very keen, I think, to go just at that time because I think that uh, that would suit me to the ground, a lovely, quiet, peaceful time of that sort of morning. So with that in mind and the timing and the breakfast aspect of it all, I'm going to leave Eric Cantona singing his soul out to his family and I won't be extending any invitations uh, out to him to join the Dackham household for toast uh, at 8 a.m. anytime soon. Well, that, that it, is he'll a, have to I'm live sure with that's it. A, that's a source mm. of great disappointment to him. I have to say, I would yeah. like to meet Eric Cantona at any time, any place. <laughs> so, so he is more than welcome to come round for some uh, for some frosties, and uh, and perhaps I had the time of my life at my house. That would be great. When you visit a large office shop or business these days, you're most likely to find yourself facing. Uh, a, a high vis jacket wearing security person, but not not to be not to be confused with the current yellow jacket movement, which is unfortunately uh, taking hold in parts of yes, Britain. I think it's a very strange thing to to wear because because in France um, it's associated. You have to have a high vis yellow jacket with you if you're motoring. So um, you, every driver in every car in France has to have a, a warning triangle, I think, a light, and one of these high vis jackets. So that's what it's associated with. But but here in the UK, where now people are beginning to wear these yellow high-vis jackets, we tend to associate it with pompous, um, puffed-up uh, people, uh, uh, sort of officialdom, don't we? Somebody with mm. a clipboard saying, you can't come in here, you can't Absolutely. go there. Or, or just people trying to dig up a road in well, peace yes, without being... Yes. With, well, I think someone put... Well, there was one that went viral on social media with someone that had written on the back of their um, back of their yellow jacket, I am a telecoms engineer, not <laughs> yes, a fascist. Not, yes. and I know, which is a pity, yeah. really. Honestly, you're trying to dig up a road to put yeah. a and the next thing you know someone thinks you're the fash I mean, I you're a bit sorry for them they, they could have chosen black shirts instead of uh, oh, yeah, yellow so have, you know that would at least we would have all known you know, <laughs> we would have known exactly. what they are can I say um, yes well all that relates to what we've got coming next which is it which is whatever happened to doormen um, that's next after Linda's farm I'm feeling rather sorry for a man I know the world he holds in trembling hands Is asking where to go And as he stares out at me from the mirrored wall I see that he is trying to cry But the tears they will not fall His life is passing by behind his tired eyes 
rather a plaintive reflection upon the month in which we're recording this episode from their best early days as sort of mystical folk rockers. They're there with a lovely Alan Hull song. The album reached number one in the UK in 1972 from Fog on the Tyne. That was Lindisfarne and January song. I've got that album somewhere on vinyl, I think. It's a lovely album. It's a really lovely album. And uh, Alan Hull, great songwriter, um, died very young. Uh, went went solo not long after this. Um, now, also before your time, Jules, because that was from 1972, mm. well before your time, uh, maybe you've seen this show on replay or repeats, rather. There was in the 70s a lovely sitcom based in New York called Rhoda. 
with Valerie Harper. Yes, I have seen some of this. And I, when I, it was just... So then they used to randomly show on Saturday lunchtimes and afternoons on BBC Absolutely. Two, I think, at one point. Like Taxi as well. They put all mm. kinds of odd things on at that time. And I rather liked it, if I remember yeah. correctly. I thought it was quite sweet. It starred Valerie Harper. I was in love with her when I was a teenager. But uh, anyway, one of the characters in Rhoda was Carlton the Doorman. Mm. And it was commonplace then for apartment buildings in the 70s to have a doorman. But now, if such a role exists, they're now called concierges. And they dress like estate agents or realtors. And certainly here in England, doormen are now very scarce. But recently, um, I came across one at a restaurant in London and committed a a well-meant faux pas. Because on leaving, as he opened the door, I passed him a £5 note. But he then asked me if we wanted a taxi. And I later found out you really only tip a doorman at a restaurant if you want him, or unlikely her, um, to call a cab for you. And I think my tip was also to mask a little bit of awkwardness. And this is where we feature that, um, another in this series of Ask Jules, um, where I hope you... The series which not even Jules is into this, never mind how poor (laughs) listeners I suspect. Well, I'm just hoping you can help me see the errors of my ways, because I'm not entirely comfortable with an elderly man, as this was, wearing a bowler hat, um, a few other clothes as well, I should stress, but a bowler hat and a, a, a suit and a, and a coat. An elderly man opening doors for me. It all feels a bit Henry Higgins and Eliza Doolittle, it, it, employing old blokes to open doors. It feels a bit uncomfortable, Jules. Yeah, it does a little bit, doesn't it, really? Mm. If it makes you feel any better, yeah. my mum committed a, 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 perhaps an even worse social faux pas oh, than good. you, given the, uh, given the circumstances of it. She, uh, my mum, she has a great social conscience, and this was a few years ago now, but mm. it, still, it still makes me so sorry if I get hysterical telling you something. It still really <laughs> makes me laugh. Probably won't make anyone else laugh as much as it does me, because I don't know my mum. But anyway, she's a very well-meaning woman that comes across occasionally as a bit brash, but she really does think very... De- We're similar. She thinks very deeply about things, despite being a bit crass like me and um and she uh, you know i have such respect for her so you know she's a regular food bank donor i think she'd be a volunteer if there was one in their town you know she, she yeah. she's really good on this stuff so she went up to buy a big issue from the big issue man who had the, who had you know was, was holding out these these documents in his hand and she came she went up to him and she said i would like to buy a big issue and you know as it's so cold at the moment here is an extra five pounds and the man said that is incredibly kind of you i'm handing out leaflets for iceland oh no <laughs> oh my god so, oh so of course, no no just no to say, he thought it was hilarious yeah. and uh, my mum now has i think something approaching a phobia of big issue sellers <laughs> yeah. because She's worried. She questions their legitimacy at all times because, as Mike Tapp pointed out, <laughs> she had attempted to pay £7.50 for a leaflet about two for one fish fingers. So, um, so it makes you really better. You know, we all walk amongst us. Um, I find anyone holding a door <laughs> open for me to be strange, whether or not they are employed to do so. Um, and, and not in a kind of a, I don't, not in the kind of a, you know, you're a feminist, you're a social justice warrior, you know, you uh, you hate men, I don't hate men, you know, it's happy, I'm, I, I find it weird when a woman opens a door for me, mm. never mind man. And uh, yeah, I open doors for other people, I don't yes. know what that says about me, but it it just, it like you say, it, it harks back to a different time. Um, and, you know, if I was writing for the Guardian for a print a princely penny, I would try and I would try and find a way of tying this in with automation. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if, if, if you know, I, automatic doors, is this the first type of automation? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I'll leave that one because I'm not quite sure where I'm going with it. But um, and, and in fact, it isn't going anywhere. But um, apart from opening and closing. But I do, I do think that... Um, it's an interesting cultural change because you talk about this sort of, were the 70s the golden age of the doorman was that the last hurrah of the doorman I think doorman? it really was yeah mm, and, I, and sorry come no I was just going to say back in exactly back in the 70s there they, they, they did used to be plenty of doorman about I can remember when I used to sit in the poshest of the posh seats at Chelsea back in the 70s mm. a uniformed elderly gent used to greet us at the door and salute as oh, we came into Stamford Bridge me. that is quite um and may, maybe it's a maybe it's a it's a social norm that we now live in a. I hate to say this phrase. It sounds. I feel like I'm going to end up in Seed's corner in the private <laughs> eye at any moment. But how society has become more of a self-service society, hasn't it? As as mm. it's become more about mm. choice, it's become more about self-service. As a result of which, maybe those are the conditions in which automation is 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 starting to flourish. We've got this situation, you know, whereby we do things more ourselves um valet parking that doesn't really happen anymore does it and that was another thing that used to happen more high-end places Mm. and we talk about you know again this seems but it's very relevant to brexit and some of the things behind brexit and the idea that you know people feeling that that work doesn't pay that they don't i mean i feel people have misguidedly been uh, gone along with with un, sort of half truths told about at best told about immigrants taking their jobs. I also I've always very much enjoyed the concept of Schrodinger's immigrant, by the way, which is someone who is uh, simultaneously claiming benefits and taking your job. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, we we feel oh you know our jobs are being taken. It's like some of these jobs don't exist anymore. It's not that anyone's taken mm. them. It's just society has changed and we feel there is no need for these jobs anymore and actually i do feel bad and i think you you might have made the point when sending me sending me the menu that mm. it used to be a, a, an occupation for sort of retired servicemen mm. and i and you know i'm uncomfortable with that i'm uncomfortable i mean whether or not you agree with the ideas of wars and armed forces etc you know i would rather we didn't get involved in armed conflicts apart from in very limited circumstances but equally if someone has done that for their country yes they've been paid to do so but if they have gone and done that and shown bravery in doing that i should be opening the door for them not the other mm. way around i think so so i i do find the fact that someone that has been and i always find this i don't like i have to get told not to get involved in helping waiters when i go to restaurants sometimes and things because yeah. i find the idea that someone i find it deeply uncomfortable yeah. and she doesn't do it deliberately we've got a, a woman that cleans our office at, at work who is lovely who's employed by an agency who's eat some sort of eastern european i think and i find it it's i mean it's 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 meant with the best of intentions but i find it excruciating that our cleaner calls me madam i find mm. that really hard it might just be because of an eastern european translation thing but i i find that i find the idea of anybody being paid to show deference to me in such an such a in the case of dormant in such a demonstrable way yes i expect when i buy something in a shop i expect the person serving me to be interested and professional and not texting or talking to their mate about where they're going out not breaking their conversation off uh, there were there were some co-ops local to me which are particularly bad at this mm. but that's a different thing i think 
to someone that is actually paid to be deferential and barry and scrapey towards me i find that really hard to cope with the ex-serviceman bit that's that, my, my strongest memories of doormen and these ones actually were always bad tempered at so-and-so's were the <laughs> were, okay I, I take that back <laughs> yeah well that's you see i think this is the heart of it because if they're deferential like the man that i gave the five pounds to with the bowler hat that's when i feel really really awkward but the um the ex-serviceman who were the doormen at bbc broadcasting house back in the mm. 70s when i was working there unless you were the director general they really <laughs> didn't want to let you in especially if you were a bloke with long hair as i was and mm. there was one doorman um and it, they, they all used to wear the full military regalia the ex-serviceman as i say all the medals and this one doorman he only had one arm and he oh, used gosh. to he used to say i won't try and do his voice because i'll do it in some awful mock cockney thing but he used to say you'll have to open the door for yourself i lost my arm in gallipoli and <laughs> the man seemed ancient beyond words but now thinking about it he must have been in his 70s or 80s because because the I, I i looked this up earlier the gallipoli campaign was in the first world war so if even if he was born in 1900 he would have been in his 70s uh then and um what i mean we used to think um this was actually quite terribly amusing and i can even remember we worked the, his catchphrase i lost my arm in gallipoli into episodes of week ending sometimes <laughs> as a sort of joke between ourselves uh, as an in joke yeah now of course with the passage of time i wish i'd shown him more respect he used to stand at the doors of broadcasting house taking snuff all day uh, somehow with one hand he used to <laughs> work that those are the glory days of the doorman but i'm kind of with you i'd sort of say bring on the revolution as well, far as all of that's concerned well, quite although having said that, that that's another sort of sub sub thing to that mm. um you feel like saying when people take on jobs sometimes and then are so resentful about doing part of that job, even if their personal circumstances make it difficult for them, you do think, you yes. know, what? Why are you doing this? When my mum worked in a school, there was a woman who was not not young, but not not quite retirement age. That was a cleaner, and she would almost begin every single day. She was paid to do a job of cleaning a school within certain hours, and she would turn up every day and go, "Oh, I can't, I can't, I can't be, I can't be too, I can't stay." too i've got to look i can't say too long today i've got to leave fairly early because i've got to pick my granddaughter up and in the end my mum unfortunately had a bit of a telling off from somebody who didn't really want to tell her off i think but had to uh, because the kalina complained because my mum said at the beginning of the day it's very nice of you to fit us in today and it's like i know cleaning the school is a pretty great job but you have been paid to do it within certain hours and you know it it was just yeah so so i do have a bit of an issue with people who you know, do not very not very nice jobs, uh, menial jobs, but uh, but are you know I don't always go in. Yeah, you know, like you say, find reasons to do not their do to not do the job. So having said that, looks like the BBC they really did take on this disability discrimination, didn't they? Uh, Possibly oh, before the legislation even came in, I uh, suspect. Very much so. But if you have ever anyone's listening to old episodes of Weekending on Radio Four Extra, or even I think we worked it into a couple of episodes of the early season, first season of Spitting Image. If you ever oh, hear the really? line. Oh, I wow. lost my arm in Gallipoli. Then you'll know, uh, you'll know where it from. came from. All the news that's fit to print <laughs> from the eighties. Yeah, Jules, when you're not inviting Eric Cantona round to breakfast, where might we find you this week? Well, you know, hopefully having breakfast yeah. with Eric. Um, it's very possible. About- other, not just me and Eric, his family are welcome. Other people can come. Everyone come round to mine. We'll have we'll have frosties and uh, and some sort of choral chant. But um, yeah, this week I am also um, 
DJing at the Dragon Bar in Hastings Ooh. on Friday, the 18th of uh, of January, uh, George Street, Hastings, with my Macaulay Bongo Debbie Hooray. doing all sorts of things. Um, you know, disco, uh, Motown, Garage, Soul, Rave, you know, what, indie, whatever we can get our hands on usually. Uh, post-punk, that's also quite represented. Um, we have a lovely time. Come and see us. That would be great. Thanks to you for listening. Yeah, you particularly. And thanks to executive producers Rona and Hilly. Always. And uh, now, Jules, a woman from the London borough of Brent with an extraordinary vocal range. Yes, absolutely, didn't she? Uh, the mini Ripperton of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of the London environs. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, so I was reminded of place because the last time that we played at the Dragon Bar uh, mm. between Christmas and New Year, um, it had a bit of a party vibe because people decided they wanted to come out and get drunk between Christmas and New Year and God bless them for doing so. And... My um, had some friends of mine called Duncan and Joe, who are a lovely couple. Um, it's Joe's favourite song, and Duncan always asked me if I play it for her, and I never had a copy of it, and so he gave me his spare copy of of this of this tune, and I've almost spoiled what it is there, but never mind. And uh, and we had a lovely time playing this at about a quarter to eleven, so everyone was pretty was pretty merry by this point, and uh, a bar of thirty five people tried to sing the high note on this at the same time. At the end, it was extremely. Someone, a woman walked past and apparently stopped to go in at the moment that she heard the note being sang and then just walked on. So we did apologise <laughs> to the bar staff for possibly denting their custom. But um, also, interestingly, this song and this song came out before Channel 4 started. And we spoke the other week, I think, mm, about, about the beginning of Channel 4. But um, I, I think I spoke, perhaps not as articulately as I could have done, but I was talking about how much I, we admired early Channel 4 because it was racially very diverse and yeah. it felt that it gave a voice to subcultures. And this this song, I always run it with that time in my head. The, the two of them, it makes me think, I don't know, it made me, they make me think it was sort of a similar time of perhaps weird that the late 70s early 80s you know much right now we were dealing with the the rise of the the national front and the far right yet sort of the scar with the scar and, and reggae that were the forefront of that scene were very much about sort of racial diversity and maybe that maybe i was making a link towards that in channel four in my head i don't know but this is such a lovely song and uh, it i can highly recommend playing it to a bar drum this is uh, janet kay and city games
You have been listening to a DAC Media Production.